Hello and welcome. You're listening to Patient Talk Podcast by Omni Health Insights. In this episode, we'll be talking about men's health. As you may or may not know, this week is International Men's Health Week, an international week preceding and including Father's Day to focus on issues facing men's health. Physicians and mental health activists mark Men's Health Week with awareness campaigns to highlight concerns such as prostate cancer, diabetes, suicide, and more. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Dr. Ali Razak, who is a family medicine consultant at King's College Hospital London in Dubai on issues relating to mental health and common mental health issues, including mental health. I began the interview by asking Dr. Razak on his thoughts on alarming statistics I found on diabetes and cardiovascular disease and the extent to which men are affected. You're absolutely right. They are very alarming figures here in the region. In the the UAE in particular, there are over a million people that have diabetes. At the moment, it's around 17% of the population. Cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer worldwide. It's a 30% cause for mortality. In the UAE, it's around 40%. So there's an even higher risk. And within that, men are more affected proportionally than women. There seems to be a you know, multifactorial cause for it as to why it's this particular region that's affected. With the UAE, there's been very rapid modernization over only a very uh, small number of decades, whereby people went from quite active lifestyles, where they were maybe primarily involved in fishing, pearl diving, trade, these sorts of activities, to more Western, uh, shall we say, types of lifestyle, which tend to be slightly more sedentary. And with that comes all the development of fast foods, things that aren't necessarily very healthy for you. And all of these factors have come together to really significantly increase the prevalence of both diabetes and heart disease in the region. Given that these numbers are so high and there's a reluctance on the part of men to see a doctor on occasion, what's the answer? How do we ensure that men get the treatment that they need when they need it? It's a very good question. You know, there's there's something about us men. We just tend to put things off. One of the real ways that we can break through this is just to talk about it, to increase awareness amongst men of the, the health risks that are associated with our sex. There are many, many campaigns to try and increase awareness, for example, with women on, you know, things like cervical cancer, breast cancer screening, those sorts of campaigns just don't seem to translate in the same way to men. So, you know, there are things like the Movember campaign that we've, we've kind of heard about where we talk about prostate cancer, testicular cancer, men's mental health. You know, although that's something that's done in Movember, I really, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in actually just trying to push this all year round. You know, men are at increased risk of the diseases that we've talked about, but we just seem to have this reluctance because, you know, that's just the way we are. And for, well, it's accepted that that's just the way we are, but it doesn't have to be that way. So it's really about getting that message out there, about talking about it with your friends, with your male colleagues, when your women that are listening, talking about you know health issues with their husbands, with their children, with their sons, trying to get those good habits in terms of getting yourself checked out and not putting things off from a young age and continuing it throughout your life. But given that us blokes, men, are so reluctant to talk to one another about our health issues, whether physical or mental, Do you feel that perhaps technology can play a powerful role in assuming that responsibility? So, for instance, uh, talking to a chatbot or an artificial intelligence about 
certain health concerns. It's a very interesting point that you raised there, specifically with regards to health tech or health technology. It's a massively developing area of interest now. We are living in an age, whether we like it or not, where everything is digitalized. People are better connected, um, but not necessarily, you know, uh, better in contact with each other. But they, you know, but people do have access to technologies that just simply weren't around before. There are some you know, really interesting apps that are in development and health tech companies that are really pushing for, yes, AI-based decision-making algorithms where, you know, if you have concerns over your symptoms, you can be asked a series of questions and very quickly the programs can kind of direct you to the right place. There's also lots of uh, technology, for example, uh, smartwatches out there where they can record basic things like even like your pulse. So there's a lot of interesting research into your heart rate as being an indicator of your overall health. So, for example, you know, what's considered to be a normal heart rate between 60 and 100, that's what's taken as normal. But actually, what we found from a study from the journal called Heart back in 2013, and they looked at 3,000 males over a 16-year period, and, and they found that if, if your resting heart rate between 81 and 90, your overall risk of death is about twice as if it is below that number. If your resting heart rate is above 90 to 100, your increased risk is around three times as if it was uh, less than 80. So that's something that, you know, is very sort of accessible to most people. If you're concerned about your general fitness, that could be a prompt for men to go and see their doctor to discuss these concerns in a bit more detail. Do you feel there might be a generational difference? So uh, we talk about technology and, and technology tends to be embraced by younger generations, people younger than me. So millennials or Generation Z. Is there a distinct difference between generations? So are younger people more inclined to take a greater interest in in their health and they do something about it? Really good point. And there's been a lot of research by sociologists and health epidemiologists looking at this precise thing. So millennials are actually considered or labeled as the most health conscious generation ever, partly because they've had unprecedented access to you know, an incredible kind of array of health information readily available on the internet and through apps. There's also a lot of kind of social media bombardment constantly in terms of, you know, looking good, eating healthily, development of sort of Instagram foodie influencers has really kind of come forwards. Just the availability of things like superfoods and people's kind of health knowledge has really dramatically increased compared to previous generations. So certainly there are some promising indicators, the millennial generation is much more conscious of what's good, what's healthy, and what's not, certainly more than their predecessors. However, having said that, there are some issues that are quite unique to sort of millennials, Generation Y. This kind of addiction to technology comes at a cost as well. So it causes things like sleep anxiety, body dysmorphia, and just being around electronic gadgets, particularly late in the evening, can really disturb the quality of people's uh, sleep and lives and resting times and maybe not encourage them to be sort of unplugging themselves from the digital world and experiencing nature as previous generations did. So, you know, the jury's still out in terms of whether is this younger generation overall healthier. Certainly the the knowledge and health consciousness is is better than, than, than previous generations. But what about other emerging trends? So, for instance, I see vaping take off and, you know, everyone seems to be kind of, uh, well, vaping. A lot of people seem to be vaping. And this seems to be a trend among younger generations again. Is this something that worries you or is this nothing to be concerned about? Yeah, it's it's certainly a really big worry. So 
when the sort of electronic cigarettes and vaping or flavored e-cigs came out a few years ago, there was this sort of push to say that there's somehow a safer, healthier even alternative to traditional combustible cigarettes. But in reality, that's very, very far from the truth. They're not healthy and they're certainly not safe. We know that they may contain slightly less chemicals than a regular cigarette, but the reality is that they actually pose their own new health risks. So these flavors contain chemicals like diacetyl that can cause lung cancers, that can cause serious lung injuries, poisoning. And actually, paradoxically, especially these flavored cigarettes, it's encouraged the younger generation to perhaps consider smoking when they may not have done that if we just kind of push that message out for not smoking uh, as was sort of quite bigger a few years ago. There is actually a lot of harm from these things. So as a doctor, I say, do you smoke? Like, well, no, I don't smoke. I only vape. So we do need to tackle this misconception. And unfortunately, you know, the evidence and the, 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 the science out there tends to be pushed by companies that make cigarettes. So <laughs> certainly we need to invest more in terms of research into more neutral studies that look at the harmful effects of alternatives to traditional smoking. What are the current treatments in heart disease and diabetes? So, you know, these are two of the concerns that we uh, talked about earlier. Are there any exciting innovations or technologies that perhaps we should be aware of that might encourage men to get treated more easily and uh, more quickly and to the greater comfort? I'm a big believer in prevention. So prevention is definitely better than cure. Now we can very easily, we have enough kind of statistics and knowledge and data available that somebody could come in, a middle-aged patient, and just by taking a few blood tests and looking at several markers of their overall health, including their age, their family history, what their cholesterol is, what their current blood sugar levels are, from that we can actually piece together a very good picture in terms of their overall risk and start modifying those risk factors from a very sort of early age to try and prevent them from developing heart disease and diabetes. So, you know, these things aren't things necessarily that you will definitely develop if they're picked up in terms of screening early enough, things can be done to reverse the disease progression. Those people who do develop things like diabetes, well, certainly there are many medications that are working very effectively at the moment. If people become dependent on insulin, there's a lot of technology now that's integrated into the treatment. So for example, have sensors under their skin that measure their blood sugar, and then that can be synchronized to your smartphone. So you'll always know what your blood sugars are without having to sort of regularly prick yourself and then you can administer your insulin shot accordingly there's even development of artificial pancreas whereby you know you don't even need to be doing any of that yourself you may have a device that will pump insulin into your bloodstream without you having to think about it through a, a sensor and technology in terms of heart disease it's a it's a similar picture so you know the survival rates from heart attacks from doing procedures that help to revascularize or open up the, the, the blood vessels that supply the heart have come a very long way and are very safe. One other symptom I'd like to discuss in particular is erectile dysfunction in men. So that could be what we call the canary in the coal mine of actual predictors of heart disease because the penis is a vascular organ. The blood vessels are much smaller than those in the, in the heart. But erectile dysfunction can be a, a surrogate marker or an early predictor of heart disease. So if men are having any sorts of symptoms in that respect, it's worth seeing your doctor to talk about it. From that, it may pick up that there may be other issues that could be acted upon and, and reversing any disease progression. 
That's really interesting. I didn't know that. So it goes beyond simple sexual dysfunction and it could highlight a very serious concern. So that's a really important message that men should uh, take interest in. Times are changing. 2020 has propelled us into a new normal where our everyday interactions are made possible through technology. Zoom, WhatsApp, Skype, Microsoft Teams, these are the pillars of our today. Healthcare worldwide has found itself tested by the pandemic and has taken center stage with organizations working round the clock to accelerate innovation. This multifaceted challenge has called for a new mechanism to support the global healthcare system to collaborate, now more than ever, using tech to make it all possible. We've shown we can collaborate from anywhere, and we will. Let's reshape the healthcare economy. Omnia Health Live is the solution to our new normal. An online expo from the 22nd to the 26th of June, 2020, forging virtual connections across the global healthcare industry. Join the experience. Let's uh, switch our attention to another area of concern, which is mental health. And it's widely noted that men of a certain age group are more vulnerable to mental health issues. The suicide rate among men in their 40s seems especially high. Why is that? Why is mental health such a challenge for men to confront in particular? Yeah, it's a very good point. Three quarters of suicides are committed by men. Every minute a man dies by suicide. It's really quite a frightening and, 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 and you know, sad statistic. The issue is that men simply aren't as good as women when it comes to talking about their feelings. And when things are wrong, we tend to have slightly smaller sort of friendship or support networks. We tend to bottle things up. It's only when things become so bad that it reaches crisis point that men will get help. Whereas if a woman is having a bad day or just not feeling well over a couple of weeks, they tend to talk about it and verbalize those concerns much earlier than men do. You know, I think it's a cultural thing as well. We just seem to kind of accept as a man, we, we, we have a bad day or we're going through a rough time. We just sort of soldier it up and get on with it. So I really believe in this thing about, you know, being kind to men and recognizing when there is an issue. Men tend to also have sort of higher levels of addiction to smoking, to alcohol. They may involve the more risk-taking sort of activities. And the way that, that depression can manifest in a man is different to a woman. So whereas a woman may be, you know, tearful and sad and, and you know, looks physically depressed, men might exhibit those symptoms through things like anger. The fact is, you know, if, if you think that you just don't feel quite right or a loved one, you do have concerns about them, then it's, you know, early intervention really is the key because unfortunately men, a lot of the time they'll make a plan to harm themselves or take their own lives and they'll act on it. And, and, and there might not even be any sort of chance to try and capture it at an earlier stage. So please do uh, get help if you have any concerns over yourself or, or any loved ones out there. This is easier said than done, isn't it? How do we open up to one another? We're more comfortable talking about other sensitive issues. When it comes to our own mental well-being, it seems as if the furthest we get is, is to say something like, oh, you know, I had a rough day in the office today. Is there a technology that can help? Is there a national campaign that can help? Is there something out there that we haven't considered yet? 
Yeah, it's a very good point. I think it really is about creating a paradigm shift and a change in culture amongst men, whereby we feel comfort and we feel that it's easier to talk about these things. You know, there are there are apps out there that, that help you, you know, maybe recognize that there's an issue. There are questionnaires you can take online that, you know, if you're concerned, you can do them yourself. There are many sort of counselors as well. And I think using online technology is a very good thing. So if, if you don't feel comfortable enough discussing these things, maybe with some of your friends because of the way you may be perceived, then it's very easy still to to kind of log online and, 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 and speak to a, a therapist about some of your symptoms. So it could be a, a neutral person. So, you know, if, if, there, if it's kind of like an embarrassment or a, a confidence issue when it comes to discussing these feelings certainly that option is available now and, and now that we have you know with the advent of sort of telemedicine technology through all these different platforms i think the access to trained therapists and specialists in mental health is really at our fingertips but again you know we, we need it from many many levels we need to be talking about this with our friends with our families at a kind of government level as well there need to be campaigns to kind of promote mental health and men's health you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, does have campaigns, does highlight this as a major kind of health inequality when it comes to the rates of depression and, and suicide amongst men compared to women. So it's something that we just need to try and normalize. And, and it's only by talking about it more and more with our friends and colleagues, families and professionals that we can normalize it and, 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 and improve those bad statistics. What are the warning signs to look out for? Because we all experience bad days on occasion. We all go through rough periods, but what are the critical signs that we should be aware of that are more prominent perhaps than your typical down period, if that makes sense? So you've got core symptoms of, of depression, which are the same for men and women, but can manifest slightly differently. So it's that kind of persistent sadness or low mood that people have. So it's not just having a bad day, it's just having a bad, actually two weeks is, is the normal definition of a uh, you know, you need to have kind of sustained, you know, feeling of low. I mean, you know, if you've had a, if you've had a bereavement, if you've had a upset at work or with a fallen out or broken up in a relationship, it's normal to feel low. But what's not normal is to have a persistent feeling for at least a two-week period where on most days you're feeling very tearful or low. The other kind of core symptom is that you just have a loss of interest in things, what we call anhedonia. So the things that you normally enjoy, like going to see your mates or playing football or whatever it is that you like doing, you just don't enjoy doing that anymore. And then you've got other symptoms. So you've got more physical symptoms. So things like disturbed sleep. So early morning waking is one of the key physical symptoms. So people may have trouble getting off to sleep, but then when they go to sleep, they can't stay asleep. So they'll wake up, they might sleep at midnight and they'll get up again at two or three in the morning. That is a, a physical symptom that could be a sign that there's an underlying depression issue. Sometimes it's sleeping too much. So it's just not being able to get out of bed, having a change in your appetite. But also some people do the opposite where they comfort eat and they end up putting on a lot of weight. Being agitated, for men in particular, aggression is a symptom, anger. You know, somebody who's always sort of arguing, getting into fights, that, that kind of change in behavior could be a sign of underlying sort of unhappiness and, and unease in general. Also difficulty concentrating. So not being able to focus on a, a TV channel, constantly uh, switching channels, just not being able to, to really have a, a concentration span that lasts anything more than a couple of minutes, again, could be a sign of, of, of underlying depression. And then sort of recurring feelings of worthlessness or 
feeling inappropriately guilty over things that you might not necessarily have much control over. And then, you know, maybe having recurring thoughts of death as well. Not just the normal kind of fear of death, but just being preoccupied with it and just thinking about death and dying, having thoughts like life's not worth living. Is it better if I don't wake up? Those sorts of symptoms or, or thoughts are definitely uh, sort of pointers that the person may be suffering from underlying depression. If I, for instance, exhibited some of these symptoms that you just described, what are the treatments available? First thing is to diagnose somebody. So it becomes clear to someone like me that my patient in front of me has signs of depression and I think is depressed. You know, for me, it's a very much a kind of a shared plan, really, in terms of how to treat it. So everyone's different. There's no kind of one size fits all model. Depression is certainly associated with reduced levels of the hormone or the neurotransmitter serotonin in the brain which is the sort of feel-good chemical. So one of the treatments that we can offer is an antidepressant that helps to increase the levels of serotonin in the brain. Certainly can help a lot with the physical symptoms, so the sleep disturbances, the appetite issues, you know, the low mood. But in itself, mental health is multifactorial. It's a biological, social, hormonal cause disease. So you need to approach it from many different angles. So the, the biological way to approach it is through maybe medication. We need to also look at the psychological side of things as well. So we may offer you sessions with a therapist looking at, for example, things like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. If you're not really keen to talk to someone, there are apps out there that you can do, you know, CBT exercises yourself with that you can just download and do at your own pace. I'd also encourage people to be doing things like just going out and doing things like exercise, because that's certainly been shown to to help boost your mood through releasing natural endorphins. But it also depends on how bad someone's depression is. So, you know, you can have mild, moderate, severe levels of depression. So depending on the severity, we'd be offering different things. If someone's particularly high risk of perhaps self-harm or, or, or otherwise, you know, we'd be much more inclined to refer directly to a psychiatrist very early on. But it really depends on how that person wants to treat their illness as well. Because I always find that, you know, if you have a shared plan with somebody, you get a better outcome. From your perspective, do you see there being any difference in attitudes perhaps between this part of the world, this region and other regions worldwide? From my experience, and I'm a GP from London, and that's where I'm from originally, having lived here and worked here for the last sort of three odd years now, I see as much mental health in terms of depression, anxiety, and other conditions than I do see back in the UK. I think the prevalence is probably on a similar level. I think there are some very good signs here that mental health is becoming much more talked about and accepted as an equal to physical health problems. So I think things are definitely going in the right direction. I think there probably still is a bit more work to do in terms of just that acceptance. So, you know, I remember in the UK, maybe 15, 20 years ago, again, there was probably a stigma and a, a taboo attached around mental health as not being as important. And, you know, again, this sort of feeling of, oh, it's just a feeling low, you know, pick yourself up. Whereas now, you know, it, it's on a par with any other condition like diabetes or heart disease or anything else. And actually, definitely we know from industry, from studies that if you have a happy workforce and, and people's mental health is looked after, they're certainly much more productive and it's better for society as a whole. So to summarize, early intervention is key. Don't wait for things to escalate and reach crisis points. Get help if you have any concerns about yourself or a loved one, whether physical or mental. 
Speak to a specialist virtually if you don't wish to do so in person. And be kind to each other. Thanks once again to Dr Ali Razak, Family Medicine Consultant at King's College Hospital London, Dubai. I would also like to draw your attention to Omni Health Live, a virtual healthcare event taking place on the 22nd to the 26th of June. There'll be a session on mental health, which may interest you. And it's for all of us, not only men, on the 22nd of June. Registration is free. And finally, this is a new podcast on healthcare, not just men's health, and I welcome your views on it. If you'd like to take part, please drop me an email at matthew.brady at informer.com. And there are two T's in a Matthew. I hope you enjoy listening. Cheers and goodbye.